Well, Jeff, today is Reformation Sunday. I know it's one of your favorite days, uh, but let me start in prayer first and then we'll get going. All right, I'm game. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to uh, hear about the saints of old. Uh, We thank you that uh, you fill your scriptures with examples that we can follow. And I just pray that uh, by digging into this history this morning, (coughs) that we can learn to love you more deeply and that we can learn to follow you and to serve you uh, more faithfully through it all. So we just ask that you would uh, speak through us this morning as we share uh, from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So as I said, Jeff, this is Reformation Sunday. And always on Reformation Sunday, your favorite day, you give us an historical theology sermon on a topic from the Reformation. Uh, It might be something about like, what is the Reformation? And you always tend to dress up in your Halloween costumes. Halloween. Halloween costumes. You know, uh, thinking about the father of the Reformation, Martin Luther. Um, I believe you dressed up like Jan Hus. You know, I'm Dutch, so I'm not going to say Jan Hus or Jan Hus. And uh, John Calvin, uh, Zwingli. At times, I think you've dressed up like John Wycliffe or John Knox, Barney. Barney. Well, I was just seeing if you were still awake, even this soon into the sermon. Half your audience (laughs) isn't, but go ahead. But you know, I know that you love to dress up one day a year, Uh, but I do have to tell you something. I don't think your math is always so good, Jeff. Really? I mean, one time you preached about St. Augustine, who died in the year 430 AD, which is a good 900 years before the precursor of the Reformation. I mean, as a former teacher, I cannot give you credit for math that is 900 years off. It's pretty close. Mm, I don't know. But I would have loved it if you had been in my graduating class. But you look like you are old enough to be my dad. I mean, come on. Now whose math is way off. But, uh, you know, with your math being that far off, uh, you would have definitely made the grading curve amazing for us. Which would have helped you. (laughs) So, anyway, I'm hoping your math has improved since then. And that today's sermon will get us closer to the pre-Reformation or the Reformation periods from the 1300s to the 1600s. So, what is going to be our topic for this Reformation Sunday? Is it going to be Martin Luther? (laughs) Okay, old man joke, Barney joke, dress up joke, math joke. Is that really the best you got? Because I am not lowering myself to your standards, man bun boy, and you need a haircut. (laughs) Besides that, though, on this Reformation, if you thought I was off by a mere 900 years, I'm going to be off a little bit more. Because we're going to talk about the first and second century AD, and I'm still going to call it a Reformation sermon. I want to talk about the emperors that had an impact during the time period in which the New Testament was written, as well as a man named Ignatius. Now, I know. I know when you hear the word Ignatius, you're thinking, Ignatius of Loyola. You don't even know who he is. But he was a great Catholic of the Counter-Reformation of the late 1500s. But that's not the Ignatius we're going to talk about. 
Because at the time in which they're going to watch this, we're going to be in Turkey. So we're going to talk about Ignatius of Antioch, which is a guy in Turkey. So let's look at those three Roman emperors. There's a lot of Roman emperors that were in the first century, but three in particular, and then a fourth really have to do with this idea of the Bible being written. So we're going to talk about Claudius, AD 41 to 54, Nero, AD 54 to 68. Then we'll skip a few of them, and we're going to go to Domitian, AD 81 to 96, and then Trajan, about 98 to 117 AD. Why do they matter? Well, the first books of the New Testament written were all during that Claudius period of time. The first books of the New Testament are the Gospel of Mark, which is really the Gospel of Peter. And then you have Paul's letter to the Galatians, which isn't a place, but it's a region. And then you have James, the half-brother of Jesus. They're all written from about AD 44 to 49. And then the last books of the New Testament are all written by John, the disciple whom Jesus loves. Not exactly sure when the gospel was written. I'm going to say 75 to 80 AD, and Domitian is 81 to 96. And then you have 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, I believe written in Turkey, in Ephesus. And then on the island of Patmos, where he is exiled, we have the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation. Whether he wrote it there or when he got back to Ephesus, that's the last book of the New Testament. So these emperors have a lot of connection to the New Testament as it was written for us. Hmm. Interesting. So let's start with Emperor Claudius, who ruled from 41 to 54 AD. He reigned during when these first uh, early writings of the New Testament came about. Prior to Claudius, Christians were actually considered religio licita, or in a legal sect or religion. That's Latin. Pretty good, bun boy. That is Latin. Are you jealous? I'm very. All right. So while Rome viewed Jews with contempt, uh, Rome would actually murder 30,000 Jews through crucifixion over a 40-year period uh, during the New Testament era. And Jewish faith was more or less legal in the Roman Empire. So early on, Christianity also had a level of legality or religio licita. It was a legal sect. And the Roman Empire uh, considered Christianity as part of the Jewish sect. Um, but starting with Emperor Claudius, in the year 49 AD, uh, Christians lost their legal status. And he actually banished them from Rome from the years 49 through 54 AD. Christians were no longer protected as a Jewish sect at this time because they started looking at Christianity as a new religion that refused to acknowledge the Roman pantheon of gods. And actually also they refused the cult of emperor worship. So, 
Uh, this was the start of overt Christian persecution. And why? Well, there's a number of reasons, but really at the top of the list is the fact that uh, Roman Caesars claimed divine sovereignty. And Jesus Christ as well is sovereign. And you know what? That is one sovereign too many. Um, And do you remember Julius Caesar? I do remember him. Yeah, he was murdered for disobeying the Roman Senate. He crossed the Rubicon River and he acted as an emperor. But his son was Octavian. Hey, yeah. at ancient Corinth, where we'll be, we are going to see a temple dedicated by Octavian. Awesome. I can't wait. Three I can't pillars. wait. That's all I got. Well, it's something. It's something. <laughs> right? And Octavian was really the first Roman emperor. He was emperor from 27 BC to 14 AD. And uh, he brought the Pax Romana. Which, more Latin. More Latin, which is two centuries of Roman peace. And he was loved for this because Rome experienced peace as uh, all of their battles were fought on uh, foreign soil and uh, as their empire expanded. And as well as that, Octavian built one of the greatest infrastructures in all of Western history. I mean, there was a road system that went through Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. Uh, He created a public waterworks and plumbing, schools, even a postal system. And uh, he was so popular that Octavian, um, he was that the Senate decided to start calling him Augustus. No, that's a problem. And that means exalted one or divine one. It's the first overt claim that the Roman, Roman emperors were deity. And consequently, because of this, Rome demanded incense to be burned at places of worship to Augustus and then to every successive uh, emperor afterwards. The emperors were now regarded as gods. And this is idolatry. Idolatry. So God-honoring Christians refused to burn incense to Octavian and any of the other emperors. And because of this, the legal and growing persecution began. Uh, Christians, as well as Jews, are bound to worship God alone. As we see in the first two commandments of the Decalogue, in uh, Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 6, we read this. It says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. With Christians rightly refusing to worship the emperor, persecution grew. And this is where uh, Emperor Claudius comes in. He expelled all the Jews and the Christians from Rome from the year 49 to 54 AD. And it's the first major persecution from Rome. Hmm. Scripture actually refers to this in Acts 18 verse 2 where it reads this. And he, Paul, found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because 
Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And this was Emperor Claudius. After Emperor Claudius, we have Emperor Nero. So he's from AD 54 to 68. Now, as it started out, Emperor Nero was, well, he was power hungry. He was lusting for more authority, but he really probably wasn't going to make a big impact. Yeah, he upped the persecution, but it wasn't that bad until June 18, 64. In June 18, 64, you have the city on seven hills, Rome, that catches on fire. And it burns for seven nights and six days. Now at this point, the average Roman does not like Nero. He is mentally unstable. He is addicted to authority and power. He is the cult of Nero. And so the average Roman hates him. And they blame him for the fire. In fact, we discover that many come to the conclusion that Nero lit the fire and then he played his lyre at the Palatine just outside the Colosseum and watched the fire burn. Now there is a historian, his name is Tacitus. And Tacitus tells us that no, that really didn't happen. That Nero was beside himself with grief as the city went up. But because he was hated, the Romans started blaming him. Tacitus tells us that the fire actually started in a warehouse, an oil warehouse. You know, that makes me think of old Mrs. Leary, whose cow kicked over the lantern in the shed. I don't think they're connected. started the Chicago fire of 1871. Come on, except for this was Nero, and it was his lion that kicked over the lantern in the oil warehouse. I actually think they wrote a song about this. It goes something like this. Five nights ago as I lay quiet as a mouse, old crazy Nero left the lantern in the warehouse. And when his lion kicked it over, he winked his eye and shouted, there'll be a hot time in the old town tonight. I'm going to go with Tacitus over the song. Okay. And Tacitus tells us that 10 of the 14 communities burned. Three were destroyed. Seven were greatly damaged. Four were untouched. So what's going on is this. We have Nero being blamed by the populace because he's unstable. He's an egomaniac. And so he begins to buy the people, send out food to the people, love the people, lower the taxes, and it does no good. So he needs to scapegoat somebody. Well, there's four communities that weren't touched by the fire. One of which is Jewish, but one of which was the Christian community. And so what Nero does is he scapegoats the Christians. And while Nero is terribly unpopular, the Christians are even more so. And so Nero begins to blame the Christians and it catches on. And so what we discover is then he dresses up Christians in animal skins and unleashes beasts on them to be ripped to shreds. And then this is kind of gory. But Tacitus tells us that he opens up his gardens. He literally, as Christians, dipped in oil or in some kind of crude and lights them on fire as human candles. And the Neronian persecutions become widespread. Thousands, if not tens of thousands, die. 
including the martyrs Peter and Paul. It's unthinkable. Unthinkable. <clears throat> and shifting blame onto the Christians was actually pretty easy. And here are a number of reasons why. Number one, uh, Christians often met underground in the catacombs, these places of burial, and, and they did so secretly so they could worship. But, but uh, the Romans thought they were secretly plotting to overthrow the Roman Empire. So Roman patriots hated the Christians. Secondly, Christians dishonored the Roman pantheon of gods and goddesses by refusing to offer sacrifices to them. Um, and these would be gods like Jupiter, Apollo, Mars, Minerva, Mercury, and Venus, and a number of others. So anytime something bad happened to Rome or the Romans, it was very easy to blame the Christians because they were refusing to sacrifice to the gods and goddesses. And also, uh, many Rome, uh, Christians sorry, were of the lower class or slaves. And so they were hated by the upper class Romans as there well. There were other reasons as well. Fourth, they were accused of being cannibals. Now you can imagine perhaps how this might have happened. Some of us know about transubstantiation. This is a theological view, one that we don't hold, in which the bread turns into the body of Christ and the juice turns into the blood of Christ. But that's not what's going on. Because that's actually under Pope Innocent III at the Fourth Lateran Council, 1215 AD. And you've already told me I'm really good at math. Yeah, so superb. something in the first and second century doesn't translate into the 13th century. So what is going on? It's Paul's words. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, that which was given to me, I give to you. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. In the same way afterwards, he took the cup after supper saying, this is my blood shed for you. Take and drink in remembrance of me. As often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you recall the Lord's death until he returns. And because of that, many began to accuse Christians of being cannibals, that they would eat literal flesh, literal blood that they would drink. And because of that, many Romans said, we want nothing to do with the Christians. In addition to that, this whole idea of total depravity became an issue. Total depravity means that every part of our being is tainted with sin. It doesn't mean that we are as evil as we can be. We still have a way to go in that party. But it means that every part of my being is tainted by sin. And they were teaching this, rightly so, that people would come to a saving knowledge of Christ, that he would redeem us, cleanse us. They were teaching it out of Romans 3.23. All have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. 1 John 1.8, if we claim that we have no sin, we're liars and the truth is not in us. These texts were being disseminated around the empire. And because of this, many individuals wanted nothing to do with Christianity. Finally, Christians called for purity. And in calling for purity and against idolatry, they were hurting the trade guilds. Many in the trade guilds were making these idols and then selling them. And prostitution was big business. And what does Paul say? 
He says in 1 Corinthians 6 to 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a man commits is outside his body, but he who sins sexually commits a sin against himself. Do you not know that your temple is of the living God? Flee from sexual immorality. Flee towards purity. Or Galatians 5, 19, for the words of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, etc. And so because they were saying idolatry is wrong, big business, and prostitution is wrong, big business, and these other reasons, the persecution against Christians grew, and many said we want nothing to do with Christianity. And believe it or not, this got even worse under Emperor Domitian, who reigned from 81 to 96 AD. He was the first emperor, emperor to require all subjects to address him as Dominus, Domitus et Deus, which means Lord and God. More Latin. There's a little more Latin for you. And in public gatherings... All were required to pledge allegiance to him as Lord and God. And refusal led to arrest and often death. And due to Christian resistance, Domitian declared Christianity religio illicita or an illegal sect or religion now. And further, he had craftsmen make images of himself, which were placed throughout the land in places of worship. And God honoring Christians refused to bow. And so consequently, they were murdered. And many of them, most of them were murdered and killed in the Colosseum. Ah, the Colosseum. I don't know if you've been to the Colosseum. It's an incredible place. But it's a place of death and it's a place of horror. What you may not know, or maybe you do, is the Flavian Amphitheater, what we today call the Colosseum, was built from 70 to 80 AD. But it was built with Jewish money and Jewish labor. Four years prior, in AD 66 to 70, Rome came and destroyed Israel. It was under the General Titus, and the emperor Vespasian, they came and destroyed the temple mount, stole all the money from the treasury, burned the temple, melting the gold, then collected the gold and the treasury, brought it back to Rome, and that was used financially to build the temple, or excuse me, the Colosseum. In addition to that, they brought many slaves back, Jews, and they were the artisans, they were the craftsmen that built the Colosseum. Now, if you visit the Colosseum today, more likely than not, you are going to have a guide that will say something like this. There are rumors that many have died in the Colosseum. They're way overstated. Almost all historians disagree. The Colosseum was used for about 400 years, and most believe that no less than 400,000 humans were murdered in the Colosseum. No less than one million animals were sacrificed in the Colosseum. It is a bloody, bloody place. And it's the Colosseum in which Antioch, who's the guy? Ignatius. Ignatius of Antioch. He was martyred at the hands of animals. Mm. Now, I bet you didn't know that he had a nickname. I did not. 
Theophoros, not Latin, Greek. Theophoros means one who honors the Lord, one who has this sense of honoring God. That's Theophoros. Nicknames. I like nicknames. Some of our staff, our coworkers, have nicknames. Jared has a nickname. Back in Freeport, Illinois, they call him Biscuit. I have no idea why. Then there's Sarah Names. Uh, her maiden name was Chevy, so some of her friends called her Little Chev. Her best friend thought it was cute and said, no, no, she's Ford. Didn't call her Little Chev, called her Ford. Bianca. Bianca's friends called her Willy Wonka because Bianca and Wonka rhyme. I love what her grandmother called her. Beyonce. Kind of a takeoff of Beyonce. Then there's Pastor Isaiah. Three-point boss Damas. Now that's a manly name because of his outside shot. That's pretty good. Andrew, <laughs> they called him Professor. We call him the Nutty Professor, if you ask me. And Brian, me? you have a couple nicknames, I, I believe. Hmm. Your Living River Quartet, they call you B. Correct. And then you have trained, you're going to just love this. You have trained your phone, uh, Siri, to call you, oh, shall we say it? Let's see. Hot stuff. I can't even believe it. Siri calls you hot stuff. Well, Ignatius was called Theophoros, the God bearer. Hot stuff, the God bearer. The God bearer, hot stuff. Yeah, I just think we'll keep that nickname quiet. I just shared on. it with a few friends. I know you did. So we want to close by illustrating uh, the challenges for living for Christ during the Roman emperor throughout the life of Ignatius of Antioch. He was a Christ follower in the fourth largest Roman city in the empire, right behind Rome itself, Ephesus, and Alexandria, which is in Egypt. Um, Antioch, which is also referred to as Syria in ancient documents, is in south-central Turkey. Years earlier, in Acts 11, God planted a thriving church in Antioch. Um, and this is the place where disciples were first called Christians. Really? Yeah, we read in uh, Acts 11:26, And when he, Barnabas, had found him, Paul, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. That's a Jeopardy question. There you go. Where is the first Christian called a Christian? In Antioch. In Antioch. So here in Antioch is where Ignatius was born around the year 35 AD to parents who were quite loyal to their local and Roman deities. And so Ignatius did not grow up in a Christian household. And his parents, including him, eventually overtly persecuted anybody who claimed to be a Christian. But amazingly, the gospel got a hold of Ignatius at one point in his life. And unbelievably, he was personally discipled and mentored by Peter, Paul, and John, as well as uh, being friends with Polycarp, who is the bishop of Smyrna. Who's mentored you? Um, wow, the Reverend 
Jeff Hines? What? No, no. So in the year 69 AD, Peter then appointed Ignatius the bishop of Antioch. And he enjoyed 40 years free of scandal. And he taught his congregants to live surrendered lives to Christ, even in the midst of persecution. He often repeated this phrase, we have not only to be called Christians, but to be Christians. And he was well known for his personal holiness and his mastery of scripture. Now, we're not sure exactly which scripture had made its way to Turkey during Ignatius' life. But through his writings, we know for sure that he had the Old Testament. He had, from the New Testament, such books as Mark, uh, both of Peter's epistles, Hebrews, four of the five uh, books that John wrote, and then at least seven of the 13 of Paul's epistles. So we're not sure if he had more than that, but of those we are certain. And we know that not only did Ignatius read these books, but he mastered them by memorizing them and by applying them to his life. He was especially known for preaching against the two major heresies of the day, both Gnosticism and Docetism, which both claim that the spirit is good, but the flesh is evil. You know, that's Platonic, which is very big in Athens, Corinth, and then made its way even as far as Turkey. Plato taught that we are dualistic, we are body, and then soul-spirit, and the soul spirit goes into heaven, but the body stays here on earth. So do with what you want with your body. It doesn't matter. It's not eternal. Of course, Paul talks a lot about that, both in 2 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, saying that what we do with our body matters to the Lord. Docetists teach that the body doesn't matter, but Hebrews teaches otherwise. And that's one of the books he cited. In Hebrews 9, 12, he, Jesus, entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, his own flesh, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus paid for our sin. If he were only God, he could be perfect, but he would not pay the penalty of human flesh. He had to be God to be perfect, human flesh to pay for us. So, both docetism and Gnosticism are heresies against Scripture. Well, after 40 years of preaching and teaching, living a godly life, Ignatius had created a lot of enemies. And so he was arrested by Rome in Turkey and brought across all of Europe to Italy where he would be put on trial and eventually put to death. Amazingly, as he crossed Europe with Roman citizens, in every village they stopped, in every town, Christians risk, think about this, they risk coming to this man. He had such a godly reputation and memorized so much scripture, was known as a man after God's own heart, that they risk coming to a man who was about to be put on trial, put to death for Christianity. But they would risk coming to him. Now, you know what happens. I mean, when you see somebody who's really sick, with all your heart, you say, I'm going to be praying for you. I'm going to ask God to bring healing. I'm going to ask God for wisdom. 
So people would see this man who was heading to Rome, who was going to be put to death, and they'd say, we're going to pray and ask God to intervene. And he said, no. No. Don't pray that I'm released. Pray that in the midst of my martyrdom, God is glorified. During this time, he also wrote letters. Not biblical letters, but he wrote letters. He wrote to the Magnesians, the Italians, the Romans, the Ephesians, the Smyrnians, the Philadelphians, and even to the Bishop of Smyrna, Polycarp. We have seven of his letters. And in these letters, he calls for the church to love God and to love one another. He calls for Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven to 40. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. And love one another. That's the second commandment, likened unto the first. He's being persecuted. He's being taken to his death. He's being falsely accused. And he says to the church, love God, love your neighbor. Love those who are persecuting. He's saying, be unified. May they know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Well, he was taken to the Flavian Amphitheater. He was covered in skins. And he was murdered in front of 50,000 people because of Jesus. He lived and died. Don't just call me a Christian. Be a Christian. Yeah, and from Ignatius and these early suffering Christians in the church, we can learn some amazing lessons. First of all, we need to remember that this earth is not our home. We are strangers and aliens, and we need to guard against becoming too comfortable here on the earth. Can we enjoy life while we're here? Yes, I believe we can. But as believers, we need to keep our focus on heaven because heaven is going to be far greater, infinitely greater than what this world has to offer. Um, and the people back in Ignatius, they longed for heaven. In 1 Peter 2.11, uh, we are urged as Christians to count ourselves as aliens and strangers in this world. And then Paul writes in Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So if the Lord is keeping us here on this planet for a while, we need to live for Christ above all else. We need to focus our attention on him and live for him. And then realize that when we come to the end of our life here, we can rejoice and we can be filled with joy because to die for a believer is gain. And what do we gain? We gain the very presence of our Savior and we get to see him as he truly is. You know, one of the amazing things about this man who lived and died for Jesus is that he never railed against the Lord. He was not angry towards the Lord. He served faithfully for 40 years and he's going to be martyred and he walks across a continent knowing he's going to die. No bitterness, no anger, not even asking people to pray that he be released. He just prays that he would honor God he believed very firmly in 2 Timothy 3.12 that all who live a godly life will indeed be persecuted. 
And he was willing to be persecuted for the Lord. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Amen. And third, a major way in which Ignatius and those who were martyred before were able to face this great suffering without compromise is that they were mighty in scripture and prayer. They knew God's word and they knew God. Isaiah 26, three reads like this. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And then also in Psalm 119, uh, nine through 11, we read this. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You know, Jeff, the darker that this world gets, the more that our culture moves away from God's morals, from God's laws, from God's truths. The more we need to be tethered, the more we need to grasp firmly to God's word and get close to him in prayer and get to know him. Because what do we learn from Ignatius and many of the martyrs from the past and those who are persecuted is that they modeled this so well. May we follow their examples. Well, let's pray. Father God, as Brian has said, may we follow the model, the historical theological models of some of these great women and men who faced a lot of persecution, tempest, trial, tribulation, chaos in their life, and yet kept looking to you, knowing that we are strangers and aliens, living life to the fullest, but believing fully that to live is your advantage to you, to die is advantage to us. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Father, may we live life to the fullest, but always for your glory. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.